Hey everyone, this is our second to last episode of season three. In two weeks, we will be airing our season finale, an interview I did with the renowned psychologist and psychoanalyst, Karin Moroda. It's one of my favorite talks I've had thus far in the journey of this show. It's been a wild season. I spent most of it not living in my own house while my wife and I remodeled, working my regular schedule, teaching classes, and plenty of other life developments which I'm sure I'll tell you about eventually. The supportive emails and social media messages I've received from all of you have helped motivate Mason and I to keep going with the show. We'll probably take another long break after this season because we are sticking with our ethos of curation and not putting out episodes just to put out episodes. However, if you want to keep hearing my own rants and conversations with Mason, I would encourage you to get over to patreon.com slash between us and become a financial supporter. We'll be posting something every month for our listeners. We're super grateful for your listens, and our plan is for this season to go out on a high note. Thanks for sticking with us. So any idea how we might do this? We should probably start from just before the point at which you thought about becoming a psychotherapist. How about a, a narrative of... <laughs> Of, of my personal triumphs. That's how I tend you to know, you That's know, how I tend to You know how these things have worked previously, so... Well, what we don't need is an origin story. We could do this around questions. You know, what advice would we give to people who were going to do this? Don't. <laughs> and if you're going to... Don't do it privately. Get something with a regular paycheck. <laughs> Is this just running? Yeah. Because all this is really good. This will be good for the intro. Jack's listening to this now going, that was gold. I'm John Totten, and this is Between Us. A while ago, before, uh, before I started coming here, there was, there was a session that Laura, Laura cried. She'd never actually done that before, and uh, it's a kind of a victory, right? It's kind of a milestone for a therapist when you when you get the patient to that point where they where they where they cry. It was different with her. There was something so so moving about seeing her just break down like that. In that moment, I swear, I could have said, fuck it all. I just want to be with her. But I didn't. I came to you instead. I can't even remember when it happened. Like, I remember you were miserable in music, but I don't remember what drove you to consider psychotherapy. Well, my decision to do it was similar to most everyone I've known who's become a psychotherapist, I was drawn to doing it because I had a really powerful relationship with a therapist. Oh, yeah, I remember. Um, Witchy. Witchy, as we called her. Which I I think that came about because there was something Stevie Nicks about her. So, Witchy, she was born. And 
following that, between that experience, which lasted about nine months, and a true nadir of the work I was doing at the time in music, which was just soul-destroying, that seed was sort of planted then. And it and that was 2011, so it took two years before I signed up for a course, but the conversation began. But can you remember the, the that transition? We've been doing some different things here in the home stretch of season three, and I'm excited to share our episode with you today. For about three years, I've been telling Mason he needs to do more contributing in front of the microphone. And due to my life being crazy throughout this season, he is graciously stepping up to the plate. When discussing ideas for the show today, I told Mason that what I really wanted to listen to was not necessarily another interview with a psychoanalyst or a colleague. What interested me was what it was like for his wife to experience him as he made the leap from full-time professional musician to counseling graduate school to practitioner. I'm always interested in this topic because I feel like I see a lot of divorce in our field, especially for the people who are married when they enter into it. Now, that's anecdotal. I don't have hard evidence that that's a trend. But I feel pretty confident that it's not always easy to be married to a therapist. And yeah, my main piece of evidence is my own self-analysis. My wife would probably disagree that it's hard to be married to a therapist. And she's much more of a private person than I am. But I'm aware of all the ways that I have the ability to challenge her when she needs to rest or to disappear into my own thoughts when she needs support. One of my theories for this season has been that it's not always easy to be with us. So I was grateful when Mason's wife, Katie, agreed to sit down and talk with him about their journey together into his new career. Here's some context. In case you don't remember from some of my stories in season one, Mason and I grew up together in Tennessee. Yes, despite his anglicized accent. We went to high school and college together, and afterwards he gradually started expatriating to the UK, mostly because that's where the gigs were. There, he met his wife, Katie. And four years ago, their daughter, Beatrice, was born. Her name is Dr. Katie Neely. She's a neonatologist with a PhD in medical communication. So, to emphasize, she's a medical doctor and she has a PhD. And as Mason describes her, she is proper successful. She sat down with her husband, my co-producer, Mason Neely, to talk about the madness they went through as a family. Here they are. I remember that you had this sort of um, intense process of meeting with witchy, as we call her, that was clearly very powerful. Did you say something like she thought maybe I would make a good psychotherapist or something, or that you had a lot of skills that would be applicable to a career in psychotherapy? And I remember thinking, oh, God, really? <laughs> um, not from a, just from a sort of... Well, like it was a cheap line. Yeah, I mean, it felt pretty cheap, like power of suggestion. 
I mean, maybe even at the time I thought maybe it was a come on or something, but I remember not being overwhelmed by it. But then I remember you sort of starting to chip away at the research, at looking into it and what it would be. And then I think it sort of started to feel like something that was probably reasonably practical given the demise of the music industry and something that was going to appeal to your skills and interests and desire to remain self-employed and flexible in the way you worked and studied yeah that's my recollection i think she didn't say you'd make a good psychotherapist i think she said you'd really have a lot to offer as a psychotherapist i can remember that the gnashing of teeth and wondering to do it because unlike yourself i i wasn't coming from a place of of academic competence or achievement i think there was a a part of me that was not so much intimidated by going back to school but was like oh shit i don't want to go to school schools for nerds once the training began once i made the decision but what do you remember about that first year i think i initially was getting quite excited at the thought you were going to become a psychotherapist because we've been watching that really crap american tv show what? Um, in treatment? In treatment, it's brilliant. yeah. That's well, the best yeah. depiction of therapy that has ever been on television. Yeah, I mean, it's a good ever. depiction, but, you know, it's fairly repetitive in its format, isn't it? But I suppose that's part of its charm. Anyway, aside, I was excited that you were going to sort of, that was what it was going to look like. And then I have to say, I felt a certain... <laughs> despair maybe after the first few months of training because it was clear that it was reasonably actually incredibly emotionally intense and it was challenging you in a way that maybe I hadn't expected you know I was coming at it from the frame of well in all likelihood the process of doing this course is going to be a process of learning to mobilise the communication skills that will enable you to be a therapist. I was taught communication skills as part of my medical training and I expected it to maybe be done in much the same way, whereas clearly what it was... Yeah, uh, whereas clearly it became very clear very quickly that what it was was actually a deep excavation of your own insecurities, past previous experiences previous experiences with therapy purposefully of course it turned your thoughts inwards and that was less sexy than drumming definitely (laughs) and at times really difficult to a watch you go through and b go through with you I'll never know what it was like to go through training while in a long-term relationship. I became friends with my wife during my last year of grad school, and we didn't become serious until much after. But I did date in graduate school, and I think one of the things I was guilty of, and this is embarrassing to say now, was trying to use my new skills too much on the women I was dating. Constantly diagnosing and analyzing Sometimes in my mind, but still. A true amateur move. But it was part of my development to realize that all that diagnosing and analyzing and interpreting wasn't really what therapy was about. 
that what was valuable to my clients and what would have been valuable to those women was my presence and my curiosity. I can only imagine how daunting it must be for someone whose partner is going through that same development process. My recollection from that first year, I think being turned inside out was, was accurate. The experience of going from being in therapy and having someone attuned to you, having someone plugged into you, having someone curious and interested and sort of guiding you in a, on, a, on a tour of you in a way that was affirming to all of a sudden use those same that momentum, that energy to also do something that was incredibly challenging and something that was, you know, was asking you to consider every part of yourself. It was, yeah, I remember being a goddamn mess. You were a mess. It was exhausting. It was exhausting for you and, you know, vicariously it was exhausting for me as well in that obviously all of this stuff was being dredged up and explored appropriately but it was it was certainly not what I expected or anticipated when you signed up for it in medical training you don't have to have every disease but it certainly felt like in psychotherapy training you had to have every emotion wrung out of yourself is that something that you felt was present throughout that time of training or just at the beginning I suppose it's most easy to remember it at the beginning, just because of the stark contrast between life before and life after. But I think there were various points, peaks and troughs throughout the training where that introspection that the training fueled reared its ugly head. I don't want to say, I don't mean that it, you know, but it challenged us in different ways at different times. And I think a lot of that was probably to do with life events that were going on as well, having B or... Or no, you. I think you were pregnant at the end of the first year. She showed up at the end of the second. That's not really a time for any introspection. Early parenthood is a very difficult time in a couple for one person to be working on themselves. You both need to be working on the joint project, really. That's how it keeps going. And I think that you having that outlet in your training, or what I perceived to be an outlet, which was the opportunity to be vulnerable, voice or share concerns, talk about our experiences of parenthood, warts and all. I suppose I felt reasonably resentful at the time that you had that and that I didn't. And also that like you were wasting our joint time and energy doing that rather than contributing to making the project better. Now, of course, in retrospect, I can see how that was a far more sensible way to get through it. But I, I think at the time it was tricky hard to stomach difficult to see I get the feeling that you know I don't know obviously I can't speak to other people's experience but that process of training to to my mind seemed so intense that there was really no option but to get 100% behind you because it was clear that there were going to be a lot of wobbles a lot of difficulties a lot of bits that just required you to keep your head down and keep moving forward, both in terms of the emotional content of 
going through all of that reflective work and introspection and so on but also like the rigor of yeah you know writing essays sticking to deadlines learning how to reference and write and at which you are fantastic at now probably much better than me but something that had always been part and parcel of the type of work that I had to do Mm. and so it was nice to hand that on it was nice to be able to be of practical help because to be honest throughout the training I didn't feel like an enormous source of emotional help you know I remember the first day of training or the first day of like the foundation course they sort of you know were doing exercises as they do to sort of get people you know into the spirit and you know, seeing where people are at emotionally. And one of the first things they did was give what they called the health warning, which said, some of you, whatever relationship you're in right now, it may end or it will end. There's a percentage of you where this is going to end whatever you're in right now, because this is going to be so challenging and such a whirlwind, such a an impact on you and your life that, you know, this is going to affect your relationships. And of course, everyone says the same thing. Everyone's like, ha, ha, ha. You got nothing. Bring it. And of course, you know, it's a, a tremendous challenge. Yeah, there there were moments of it, particularly in the first year, where I felt like every insecurity I had was sort of, it was like all my nerves had been turned inside out. And I was walking around with them exposed. I thought my communication skills were pretty on point, if I'm honest. <laughs> um, but like the process of seeing you develop deploy use these skills these psychotherapeutic skills it's changed the way i communicate professionally enormously you know um well i don't know i suppose i've just picked up a lot of little practical tips from you obviously we've had casual swearing no not generally smiled upon in the newborn (laughs) intensive care unit but you know about making sure people have their voice and doing more to give them that in the interaction rather than just impose a standard set of empty platitudes upon them about how terrible it must be what they're going through and how I couldn't possibly understand what they're going through really taking that time to work at it with them and Mm. to get more of a sense of where they are because you know for a a tremendous amount of the patients I deal with in newborn intensive care actually we're not actively doing anything for them other than providing basic supportive care and so for the parents the biggest part of their you know therapeutic experience might be the opportunity to communicate with a Mm. professional about what is happening Um, and I don't think I'd ever thought of medical talk as therapeutic in the setting in which I work but I definitely do now partially transformed by you partially transformed by the process of becoming a parent Mm. I couldn't have done it without you. I couldn't have understood what I understood. I couldn't have sort of begun to talk myself the things that I did. It was impossible without your input, without your patience. 
I've, I've seen someone go through the, that hall of mirrors phase, which continues into private practice, which is not something that ever goes away. No. I suppose, yeah, I, that's another thing I didn't really appreciate, is I think I just thought there would be a point, much like becoming a fully qualified independent practicing doctor I thought there would be a point where you would just be a psychotherapist and that would be it like all of the weaponry armory would be available to you where it's clear that it's an incredibly iterative process of constantly evolving changing being influenced by different philosophies theories methods of practice and that there are probably going to be multiple reincarnations of Mason as psychotherapist, which will be loosely linked to, yes, intellectual interest, but probably also linked to, A, the stage and phase of your own life. For someone who came into psychotherapy to sort of get away from the constant flux of music because I was someone within music that was always I was always doing different things if I go back 12 months to look at how I practice the things that interest me the things that the the way I I intervene in that setting changes it's something that's always evolving and that seems like a lot of your view of this is like again there's a toolbox you get the toolbox yeah you've used all the tools you've seen all the major life grievances and then you just sort of redeploy the tools around different people and the money keeps rolling in i will admit in my naive view that was sort of what i expected this to be and it's clear that that's not been the case there have been clients who you've been enormously moved by who you've been really incredibly affected by i suppose that's something that maybe i didn't expect as well how how so I mean, I suppose there are parallels in medicine. There have been patients who I've been extremely affected by. But maybe I think the tide comes in and out quicker in medicine in that the volume of people you deal with is larger. Things come very quickly towards you and quite often go away quite quickly too. Whereas what you've had to experience often is quite enduring relationships with people, you know, who are having the worst time. So, my wife is introverted and private, and I promised her I wouldn't press her to be on this episode. But I did ask her, what's the hardest thing about being married to a therapist? And in her way, she replied, I don't know. I've never been married to anyone who wasn't a therapist. Cool. So I asked her why she wasn't interested in me in a romantic way the first time we met. She said, the first time we met, you were super depressed, and it didn't seem like you wanted to interact with me either. Fair enough. She's right. My wife hates being put on the spot or interviewed. Maybe part of me married her because she wouldn't allow me to therapize her. And by the time we dated, I was overworked and burnt out, and I needed someone I could be with where it didn't feel like therapy. But her answer is still useful. The first time we met, I was super depressed, and I didn't want to interact with her. 
I wasn't interested in her either because she was too good for me. Not in a way of being out of my league, because I don't really believe in that concept, but in a way of actual moral and emotional goodness. There are a third of my clients in any given day. You know, you do a job. You do have a toolkit. And that's not to say that you're giving pat responses or you're not engaged or you're not plugged in. They're willing to go to a certain way and you're willing to go a certain way. And the two of you are only able to create so much together and skills come into play. And that's an affirming thing to do with one's time as a tradesman. And then there are people when something sort of bordering on ephemeral something special happens. It might not be culminated. You might not reach fruition with it. And then there's a third of it where something absolutely transcendent occurs between people. To say intimate seems silly. It's some sort of meeting, some sort of connection. That's the most life-changing thing I've ever done, apart from love you and love our daughter. What's that like for you to have me, I don't know, to to talk about the work in that way? Um... I think I sort of have a knee-jerk reaction against the notion of that intimate relational element of what you do. And I suppose that's... Well, that reflects my insecurities about the content of your work, the way it plays out, the types of intense relationships that you have with clients the way people become attached to you, the way you become attached to them. You know, there've been times when that has been really difficult and challenging. Not from a jealousy perspective, you know. Well, no, actually, I suppose from a jealousy perspective, first of all, these are people who you meet, who you have these very intimate interactions, obviously, albeit very highly boundaried, but who affect you deeply and you affect them Mm. and I then feel jealous when you and I don't connect well because I feel like this connection must be something that it you deploy it professionally so when we're misaligned I sort of struggle to understand how we get to that place when this is something that you do sort of on demand and if I could do it on demand for them. Yeah, why can't, can't you do, do it for yeah. me? And that's because I think a lot of your emotional patience, your energy, your willingness to connect, your openness to that connection, your willingness to tolerate shitty pettiness that's a part of like every long-term partnership is maybe worn down by the fact that you have to deal with that you know, hour by hour, day in, day out. I know when I've had a particularly emotionally exhausting day at work, I don't have a tremendous amount of patience, empathy, compassion available for you or for Beatrice. You know, and I suppose you're just in a trade where the taps are constantly on. And that must be hard. In the beginning of my counselling career, I had a hard time accepting simple goodness in my life. My wife was like the opposite of what I was searching for in those days. Maybe that's why I found myself in a therapy career. Maybe that's why I made relationships so complex and so academic. But in the end, that way of being in the world, for me, was like Mason's music career. 
soul-destroying. Thankfully, my wife's grounded tranquility beckoned me out of my own self-made prison and out of that depression. But I'm also grateful the timing happened after my training. Back to Mason and Katie. In that patience, in, in that sort of that expenditure of empathy, I rarely experience it wearing down my ability to connect and meet you absolutely with B. And especially in the beginning when I was building a practice, you know. And when things, when, when my caseload gets way too big or, you know, when I feel like I'm, when the work's becoming too much, my patience with her is you know, goes out the window immediately. Well, yeah, she's another unreasonable force to be embraced. Yeah. And I found that incredibly hard to fit that into family life. And I shout from the rooftops to clients, you know, that how anti-authoritarian I am and how I am a human being as well. And for whatever training or expertise or understanding that I may have... I'm an individual trying to navigate the the joys and terrors of being alive. You know, they do look to you, and they want a lot. And so do toddlers. Oh, yeah. And toddlers don't even fucking pay you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you think there's been a change as I've developed and as the practice has become prof- an actual professional operation? Well, yeah, I mean, but I, I think an enormous amount of that can just be attributed to the fact that you know, for the first time in a long time, you're doing a job that brings you joy and purpose. Yeah, I love and it. And frustration and difficulty and so on. But but first and foremost, it brings you meaning and it brings you pleasure to do that job well. Mm. And I think that, you know, in your life and in our life, that's been transformative. I mean, I suppose it's worth discussing... You know, there are clients who have stayed with me or been more at the front of my mind than others. Yeah. Clients that have formed romantic feelings, sexual attraction. You know, I remember you sharing with me for the first time the notion of transference and being like, what? That's actually part of it. And then it became easy very quickly to appreciate why that would be the case. I think when it's happened to you, and obviously the details you have shared with me have always been scant and sketchy. I don't know. I've had a number of responses to that. First of all, anxiety for you, that you are in a vulnerable position and that whilst the thrill of meeting that intellectually and practically is enormous fundamentally you are vulnerable as a man who works alone with women and you know there's a there's an anxiety around that around how you may might might be seen about the professional and boundaried aspects of that that might be very very difficult for some clients to understand and tolerate And then it would be stupid not to acknowledge it is the fear that you have these deep, intimate relationships with clients who are stimulating and challenging and interesting and 
varied and that you as a human will be, I don't know what the right word would be, excited by that transference, titillated by it, flattered by it, that just as we're all vulnerable to attraction to others, that that could be an element of it, even in this boundaried professional space. Of course, there have been clients which are interesting and there have been clients, you know, that I have... How can I phrase this? That are attractive. Yeah, and that I have been attracted to. That are physically attractive, I, that are spiritually that and are, emotionally and... But but there's... But it, that's... In the moment of of meeting that as a practitioner and someone who has done this long enough to be like, I'm a professional. I, I do know what I'm doing. I'm, it, I may lose it all the time. But, you know, there is a confidence. It's... It's a terrifying thing. It's not really titillating. At the time, it's incredibly difficult. It's something that's really scary. Not scary because something's going to happen, but scary like, how the fuck am I going to manage this? Not just manage it and get them out of the room, but manage this in a way that can help make a positive impact. That that out of this sort of this wild, primal, effective experience, this thing of... of, of you know, we can call it transference. We can dress it up. We can clean it up in that way. But it's in that meeting of people and that and, and desire coming out of that. How can you use that incredible thing in a way that's constructive, that's illuminating, that's edifying, that pushes people towards a greater affirmation of their lives? And the weight of that, to try and manage it in a way. I suppose the, the things that I have shared to you, or shared with you rather, have been not so much to offload my my own emotional experience but more like almost practitioner to practitioner to practitioner like fuck how can this be managed in a way that's positive like how can i sort of stay in this stream and how can i stand against this tidal wave yeah well the patients and the clients who challenge us the most are the ones who have the greatest power for transformation and learning but you know there is something different about this in that it is an affective relational bond between two people in which one person is projecting or experiencing something that is, you know, that is not reciprocated necessarily or that is reciprocated but then has to be, as you said, managed in a way that serves rather than damages the interaction as a as a woman and as a wife it's difficult not to feel threatened by that or intimidated by it Mm. at least not not practically threatened not like fear or concern for our relationship but certainly intimidated by the intensity within within a consult with you know take your job at the moment about you know genetics if you are talking in that consultation about the relationship that you have with the patient, with the family, if you're going deep into that relationship, you have gone so far fucking off course as, and, as to what your remit is there. Yeah. Whereas with, whereas 
uh, the way I conceptualize the therapy meeting is really when I'm talking about the relational experience and the relational material that's being generated from the therapy setting between the client and I, we're actually in therapy. Then, you know, sort of all of that unconscious material is being made emergent. You're creating something to explore. Yeah, and I suppose that's where my excitement comes in of, you know, God, as terrifying as this is, it's, oh shit, it's happening. This is, we're there. And sometimes that can be that can be channeled and managed into something useful, and sometimes it just overwhelms the process altogether. There are going to be couples out there right now who are training to be psychotherapists. Words of wisdom? What would you tell them? My advice would be buckle up, because <laughs> this is probably going to be quite an intense journey. I think that in the process of unpacking all of your own insecurities, traumas, relationships and so on, it somehow did often shine the spotlight into corners of our relationships that maybe were not working as well as one of us would want, places where we don't align well, places where we have fundamentally different experiences you know it shone light into places that we've both then been forced to look together and I'm grateful for that but I would say as the partner of someone doing that be prepared that you are not immune from involvement that your role will be critical not just in support but in the exploration of the things that shape the person who will ultimately be a therapist there should be a leaflet perhaps on induction that you can hand out to your friends and family it is worth saying you can't have two hyper emotional people in a marriage i think that is worth a mention um you know not just the process of unpacking it but my suspicion is generally the people who are drawn to be psychotherapists are i call them externalizers but I don't know if that's an official term. People who are clearly very comfortable with sharing the nature of their emotional reaction to things. And I think that, you know... Look, I'm I'm Freddie Mercury and you're John Deacon on bass. Crushing it. I'm Work, not sure Working that I away. Am. While me... I'm front stage of, hand. In front of the... <laughs> or seventh wire man on the sound <laughs> seventh wire right I think I think that went well thanks Kay thanks thanks Mace this has been Between Us our special thanks to Katie Neely for being our guest and to Mason for taking the wheel Between Us is produced by myself John Totten and Mason Neely who also composed our music Tune in in two weeks for our season finale with Dr. Cara Marota. As usual, go and find us at patreon.com slash between us to become a supporter. Leave a review on iTunes or find us on social media. And until next time, take care.